Let's go ahead and pray uh, before we get started. Heavenly Father, we come yet again before your throne of grace, asking that you would be among us, uh, that Lord, as we consider uh, more of the doctrine that speaks of who you are and how you have revealed yourself, that you would uh, truly um, help us to grasp and to get a sense of your majesty and your transcendence, of your holiness, of your glory. These are things that we know are often mentioned in your word, but things that are hard to comprehend and, to be honest, cannot even be comprehended in the fullest sense. But we do pray, uh, Lord God, that you would be with us and instruct us, teach us, and grant us understanding to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we continue our study this week um, on the doctrine of God. Um, this time, what we are looking at is uh, the majesty of God. This is quite the, uh, quite the topic uh, to try to tackle. Um, and it has been a challenging week prep-wise. Uh, this has been a week in which what it has really shown me uh, is that I don't think upon God enough. I don't think about His majesty and what that involves and how He reveals Himself. Um, and so it has been a challenge. And what I hope is that as we move through this, we're going to move through a number of you know, lists and headings and the ways to kind of break this down and think through it. But what I hope is that there's also a solemn approach, a a humble approach, a, a way in which we are all drawn in together as we consider a topic like this, the majesty of God. Um, I hope that it is something that really kind of spurs us on to, you know, as we read scripture, as we meditate upon the things of God, to allow our minds to really try to pierce deep into these things. I think that's the issue. It's, you know, I go to think about these things and it's like I only get so far because it's like, man, your mind can just be blown, and there's certain things that we just cannot comprehend. But nonetheless, this is how he's revealed himself. He has revealed himself as majestic. And so this is what we want to look at. So when we think of majesty, what we often think of is just the definition that we find in the dictionary. This is, this is how the dictionary breaks it down. It defines majesty as impressive beauty or scale uh, or dignity. It defines it as royal power, and this is what we see when we think of, you know, we refer to, you know, the king and queen over in England, his majesty, her majesty, you know. Um, and so from a worldly perspective, or from just our common day understanding of this word, uh, we can see that there are many things in this creation that are majestic. I think of the time when I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time. I mean, I've only been there once. So I guess it was the first and only time so far. But, you know, you see the pictures. But if any of you have ever been there and you're standing in front of the Grand Canyon and just the scale, the depth, the, the, just how far, it seems like it never ends. This gives us an idea of something of majesty, just the beauty, the scale, the landscape. Uh, this is how people speak of 
majesty. They speak of a, a, a view that they had where it was mountains and rivers and valleys. And they think that's majestic. That is just a picture of majesty. And it gives us a picture of the majestic one. The one who created those things that we enjoy. So this is how we picture majesty as far as we can comprehend. Wow, that's beautiful. That's amazing. But when it comes to God, how are we to understand majesty? What comes to mind? You know, that's a big, broad term. So what is it referring to? Well, I think it speaks of, or it's the very summing up, if you will, of his being, who he is. And this will be a repeated theme. That's, as we look at these various components of majesty and, and how we can kind of break it down, what we'll see is this is who he is in his very being. He is majestic. He is great. He is unsearchable. That unsearchable doesn't mean unknowable. That means there's no depths to which we can go to where we can search him out fully. There is nothing else like that. He is clothed with splendor and majesty. And last week we considered how he's revealed himself, his creation and his names, his attribute, his nature. These are the things that reveal his very character and that make up his majesty. These are the different types of things that we will be walking through. It's the summing up of all that he does. And so there are a number of scriptures we can turn to, to that, that, that speak of his majesty. And there's, there's three in particular that I want each, you know, if somebody could pick up Psalm 104, verse 1. Who's got that? Psalm 104, verse 1. Ben? Psalm 8, 9. You get that? Okay. And Psalm 111, 3. Jai, thanks. These, each of these verses will bring out, draw out some of these aspects, his work, his name, his being. Uh, Psalm 104.1, who's got that? Ben? So this, this covers the aspect of his being. It's, it's in his very being he is majestic, and this is what he clothes himself with. Psalm 8, 9. Who's got that? How majestic is your name in all the earth. This aspect of his name will be key as we dive into this, because what we see in Scripture is he does things for what? His holy name. So his name will be key. And then Psalm 111, verse 3. Splendid and majestic is his work, and mm. righteousness endures forever. That's right. So that speaks of his work, his creation. All that he does is majestic. It's not like, you know, like we do things that are kind of like, eh, semi-good. His is majestic. Turn with me to Psalm 145. This is a psalm that I have spent much of the week thinking upon, and I would highly exhort you this next week to read through this psalm, to think through this psalm. This is a psalm that is full of praise. As I mean, there are many. There are many. But it extols the majesty of God. 
It extols the majesty of God. And so it would be good to think through. Here's what we see, verses 3 through 5. This is what we read. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and declare your mighty acts. And here it is. On the, splend- on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. How do we meditate on these things? How do we think upon his majesty? Well, we must know him. We must be familiar with him. We must be pursuing him. Do we do that? Are we content with just a little bit? Uh, and this is why, it's like, as I was preparing this, I'm like, I can study all the doctrine I want to study, and I can do all the different readings I want to read, but and am I meditating on, am I soaking in the majesty of God? Verse 12, this is what it also says. To make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. This is what Spurgeon says in regards to this work, this making known his mighty acts, uh, this glory of his majesty. Spurgeon says this, this work must be done for every age. Here's why. Why does this work need to be done? For men have short memories in reference to their God and the doings of his power. They inscribe the deeds of their heroes upon brass. We recognize men of this life upon brass and plaques and trophies. But the glorious acts of Jehovah are written upon sand. And the tide of time washes them away from present memory. We've probably all had those experiences where we have experienced the power of God, the moving of God, and then it's, you know, time goes by, and it's like, It never happened, or we forget, or we don't dwell upon it, but it's not the way it should be. Why don't we do this? Well, I think, or I fear, or at least as I examine myself, what happens is this. We inscribe our heroes upon brass. Just as those are inscribed upon brass, so too the glories of this present world shine brighter to us than the majestic, holy, triune God. That's what we're essentially saying, is these things here and now more important, shine brighter than the majestic one. So ultimately, we could say that the majesty of God and its components, they highlight this. This is what, um, you know, a main theme that we'll see. It's the creator, creature, distinction. This is something that is um, essential for Christian theology. It is a tenet of the Reformed faith. This is, when you think, again, we talked back about the doctrine of God and the importance of the doctrine of God and being sound in these things. The creator-creature distinction is important. Why? Why is it important? Quite simply, because we're not God. And we have a tendency to think that we are. We can think we're self-sustaining, and we can think that we can do all of these things. And we boast, and well, tomorrow I'm going to do this, and the next day I'm going to do that, and I'm going to... It's not how it works. 
we're not God. There is a distinction between the creator and the creature. Uh, He operates or functions on one level and we on a completely different level. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so his transcendence is one of the aspects that we're going to look at, and uh, the way that I have that broken down is his attributes, or at least his incommunicable ones, which would be a seity. Um, this is what we read in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. This is where we see this in particular. I mean, there's many places, but he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so like I said, this will be a continual theme that as we move through, we're going to see this distinction hopefully greater and greater. And it's according to the components as I've broken them down. So what are the components of the majesty of God? You know, there's probably many that can come to mind, but to try to break this down... Uh, We will look at his uh, transcendence, his holiness, holiness, and his glory. Each of these components are phenomenal in and of themselves, but it's these are maybe the main headings, if you will. If you wanted to say, what is the majesty of God? Oh, it pertains to his transcendence. It pertains to his holiness. It pertains to his glory. And what we will see as we examine these is these things ultimately apply to him as creator. And in some of these we share, but we share as a creature, meaning we share analogously. We don't have them to the same level. And in many ways we have these things because of him, because of Christ, Um, such as holiness. We're not holy in and of ourselves. We're made holy. I'm jumping way ahead on that point, but that's, that gives you a picture, though, of like how we share analogously. Not same level, different level, but with him because of him. So the transcendence of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God. So when it comes to the transcendence of God, there are many who readily assent to that. They have a picture of God as one who is separate, far out, above, but how do they usually express that? What does that mean to them? That's right. He's so far above, so far beyond, not knowable, not concerned with what's taking place, disconnected. Yeah. But God, while he is most certainly transcendent, has not revealed himself as one who is disconnected. He is most certainly above and beyond, but how else has he revealed himself? He has revealed himself as one who is near, one who is close. Not only that, one who desires to be with us, the Emmanuel principle, God with us. That is the whole reason Christ came, was that we could be with him. And so his transcendence doesn't mean no interaction. His transcendence doesn't necessarily mean no access. Oh, it certainly means no access outside of Christ. But in Christ, he is still transcendent. But in Christ, he's now able to be approached. 
And this is how we must understand the transcendence of God. Uh, he, uh, this is how the Bible uh, reveals him. So transcendence, if you know, if you're, I guess if you're taking notes here, it's to be beyond or above. And essentially what this is referring to is his otherness. He is other than us. He is not like us. He is not like us. Why? Because we are uh, sinful human beings. And this is something that we need to understand. This is that distinction. We can tend to picture God as being like us, and we fashion him like us, and he has the same feelings and emotions that we have, and he's set in upon by circumstances like we are, and that's not the case. We can have God as our friend through Christ, but he is not our buddy. He is not our buddy in that sense. Like People like to use that just flippantly. He is the transcendent one. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. We have here a description of God and how he cannot be compared to anything. Certainly not us. This is what we read in verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So now this is the description of God that we see that follows. Now, this is not going to be a uh, full reading of these verses, just a summary. So verses 10 through 11, this is what he, uh, this is the description of God. He will come with might. And this might that he's coming with is not the feigned might of creation that thinks that they're powerful. It is all might. It is true might. And he will come to save his people and deal out recompense to his enemies. And then in verses 12 through 14, we have what we, what we could call the who has inquisition. This is where he runs through all of the who has. He says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked out the heavens? Who has weighed the mountains? Who has directed him? Who has informed him? Who has taught him justice? Who has taught him knowledge? Who has given him understanding? And the answer is obviously no one. No one. And then note how the nations are compared to him in verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor the beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. And so here's what all of this culminates up to in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? And what likeness will you compare with him? We see the same thing repeated in verse 25 after again this descriptive uh, language of who he is. He says, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. And so we must understand there is a massive distinction between creator and creature. And we should marvel at the fact that this majestic one 
has made it possible that we can know him, that we can commune with him, that we can sit here even now and open up his holy eternal word and be taught and, be, and, and learn of him. So, as it relates to his otherness, there are two ways in which I want to, to look at, to, to consider this. One, his name, and then his attributes. There are many ways in which we can, you know, break down the idea of transcendence, but I think really, between these two, we kind of get the most bang for our buck, if you will, as far as the time that we have. But here it is. There are many names used in Scripture for God, and they convey different meanings and truths about who he is. But there's one name, as it were, that stands above the rest. Anybody know that name? Yahweh. Yahweh. That's what we see in Exodus 3, 13 through 14. This is how he revealed himself to Moses from the burning bush. This is what we read. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This name appears in scripture, how many times do you think? If you had to guess. A hundred? Okay. Anybody else? A thousand? Anybody else? One? Way more than one. <laughs> just to be clear, this name, just to be, this name is revealed like this, or at least it shows itself like this in the Bible, right? Capital L, capital O, right? That's how it shows itself. 6,000 times. 6,000 times. If... Yahweh, I am, that's his covenant name. Okay. Yep. So all, all 6,000 times it's like the tetragrammaton, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so what we see is this isn't just some random revelation. This is the complete revelation of who God is and how he has made himself known. And so what does this name convey? What does this name convey? Somebody said it. A saity. I don't even know if I'm going to spell this right up here. Okay, what else does this name convey? Right, and, and so a seity breaks down self-existent, self-sustaining, uh, independent. It breaks down as sovereign. Nobody else can use this name. Nobody else is sovereign. Nobody else is self-existent. Nobody else is independent. I said it last week. Anybody else who says, I am, must predicate, must complete the sentence. What are you? We have to describe what we are. When he says, I am, he is pure being, existence. He is beholden to no one. 
Now, if you would, turn with me to Isaiah 47. Isaiah 47. We see this, this, this phrase, I am. Okay? We see this phrase used here. But notice the one who uses it. This is interesting. Um, verses, we'll read uh, 7, 8, and then I'll reference 9. But this is what we read. Yet you said, I will be a queen forever. So this is speaking of Babylon and what they thought of themselves. Okay? You said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely, who says in your heart, now listen to what they say about themselves. I am, and there is no one besides me. What are they saying? What is Babylon saying? That they're God. Babylon is self-deifying itself. Self-deifying, yep. Okay? When we think about all of the anti-Lord systems in Scripture that you see, really from the fall onward, and how they manifest themselves, this is what they're saying. I am. What they're saying is, I am God. I am autonomous. I am in control of what I do. So here's, here it is. So he says, I will not sit as a widow nor no loss of children. But he says, but these two things in verse 9 will come on you suddenly in one day. This should bring to our mind Revelation 18, in which you see Babylon pictured again. This world system, this anti-Lord system that makes all these great boasts, and it says, woe is Babylon. Their destruction has come in one day, in one hour. So you see a connection here that this is what this world is about. This world is about supplanting the true I am, the true transcendent one, with themselves. And so we must never forget the creator-creature distinction. He is truly transcendent. Man can make these I am claims, but there is one I am, the only I am, who is truly self-existent, self-sustaining, independent. We are dependent. Our next breath, we are not even guaranteed to take. We are reliant upon him. But the other way is through his attributes. Now, there are many different ways you can classify the attributes of God. Um, Beaky has broken out seven different methods of classification, all different types of stuff you can get into. Uh, things between his existential attributes and spiritual attributes, moral, and okay. How are we used to hearing them broken down? How are we probably familiar with them being broken down? What are the two headings? That's right. Communicable and incommunicable. What does it mean, communicable? Reflect. Okay, that's good. That's right. So, it's, so communicable means... There's an aspect in which we share in them. We reflect them. Now, 
in the strictest sense, none of God's attributes are communicable if you consider like fully. We never share in them in the fullest sense. But there's ways in which we share, like I said earlier, analogously. I don't know how you spell that, but there you go. Analogously. But his incommunicable is where we want to focus because it is these attributes in particular. We don't share in these. We don't take part in those at all. And so it speaks of his otherness. These are things that relate to God and his very being, who he is and only he has. What are they? That's right, a satiety. Solidarity, um, which, I mean, he stands alone. That is like the idea of really even his holiness. When we talk about like that being separateness, his, he stands alone in comparison to everything else. Um, his immutability. He never changes. We change at the drop of a hat. Something happens and it's like, that's it. Well, we're fickle. He never changes. How about his infinity? Now, when we think of his infinity, we, we must understand his infinity as being uh, eternal so as it relates to time and omnipresent as it relates to space. He is everywhere. And he is not beholden to time. Well, I don't, as far as being all-knowing, but we do have knowledge, um, but we can't be everywhere at one time like as he is. So we have... Uh, no, I think his infinity as far as that relates to uh, really the way that I kind of looked at it was his e his eternality his right and then um his being uh everywhere there's one analogously analogous uh meaning you know we follow uh him so this is the transcendence of god you know as i've kind of thought through it this week <laughs> um <laughs> There's much, I mean, you can do studies on each of these. We don't have time for it, but this is how you can break it down and just meditate on the one who is truly other and understanding we are not him. We are not him. Okay, how about the holiness of God? How about the holiness of God? When we speak of the holiness of God, what are we referring to? Whoops. What are we referring to? Okay, so you're speaking about an aspect of his holiness in which you would say like that could be his uh, moral, the moral aspect of his holiness, which speaks of what his, his sinless, perfect, pure, perfect, pure, perfect, never sinned, 
um, and so forth. His holiness is an attribute. We've all studied that, you know, that there's, there's an attribute. It is a communicable attribute. Uh, we share in that holiness in Christ where we are even being conformed more and more sanctification, where we are growing in holiness. It is an attribute, as some have called it, John Howe notes, it's an attribute of attributes, because it truly, you could say, his holy power, his holy love, uh, his holy truth, um, it in, in some sense, it's descriptive, too, of all other attributes. Um, but in addition to the, the moral aspect here, there's an ontological aspect. So the moral pertains to his acts and what he does and his purity, his perfection. What does ontological refer to? In his being. This is what he is in his being. Holy. We see this, and when it comes to the the holiness of God, if you have not read Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, I highly recommend it. It is a great introduction uh, to God's holiness. Very readable. Sproul is phenomenal when it comes to that. And then obviously there's all the different systematics and so forth that you can get into if you want like a real deep, deep dive. Um, but one of the verses he breaks down and, and walks through, if you've never seen his teaching on Isaiah 6.3, I uh, highly recommend you guys watch that. But this is what we see proclaimed in Isaiah 6. It's the holiness of God repeated three times. There we read, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In fact, this is the only attribute that is repeated like that. And as it relates to this repetition, this is what Beeky says. Hebrew employs repetition for superlatives. What's a superlative, just so we understand what that word is conveying? The best, the highest way to describe something, to refer to something. The unique repetition of this attribute three times shows that God is holy, not just in a superlative sense, but in a super superlative sense. It's the highest, highest, highest degree, if you will, by which he is holy. By which he is holy. And so when we think of his holiness, just as his transcendence refers to his otherness, his holiness refers to him being uh, separate. Separate from. Standing alone. Standing alone. He's set apart from anything common. Beaky says this, God's holiness means that he is set apart by his glory for his glory. When we consider now the the moral aspect as far as its definition here, um, this is is key as far as even what Calvin said, what we looked at last week, where he says, there is no knowledge of God without the knowledge of self. How does knowledge of self help us to understand the holiness of God? That's right. 
when we contemplate our unholiness and our sin, it magnifies the holiness of God. It just shows forth, wow, everything he does is holy. This holiness should continue to shine brighter and brighter to us. Why? That's right. As we mature, as we grow, we see more and more, not of, wow, I'm perfect. We see more and more of our sin. We see how wretched and how awful we are. That is what we begin, we start to see glimpses. Wow, I can't believe I thought that thought or I said this or that motive was in my heart. Maybe we don't see those things when we're first, you know, we see them initially, but as we grow, it's like, man, I can't believe I had that thought. That thought never bothered us before. And now we see it clearly. And we think, wow, God is holy. Did you have something, brother? Mm. that's it that's it he's the one that makes us holy and so this is where i even speak of the creator creature distinction in regards to this we know nothing of holiness apart from christ this is the distinction we have to be made holy he forever and always is holy that's the distinction we know nothing of holiness. And yet, He is the Holy One. So seeing His holiness and meditating on His holiness can be difficult. But it's necessary. Why is it necessary? Why is it necessary? Well, it keeps you humble, sure. What's that? It's the only way you can know him. I'm thinking along the lines of this. It's the impetus behind our need to be holy. It is what is driving that forward. And this is what we see in Leviticus 11.44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. So it's the impetus behind how we are to live. Just as He is separate, set apart, what are we if we're in Christ? We are separate now. As we see in 2 Corinthians 6, He says, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. We are no longer uh, of the world. We're separate from that now. We are set apart. Do we see that? That we are set apart. We should not be partaking in those things. We should be seeking to pursue holiness because God is holy. This was vital. I mean, when you think about the Reformation and what they were just seeking to reform, this aspect was key. This was something, especially when it comes to the Puritans. I mean, those dudes sought to live holy lives. I mean, they cut off like everything. And so this is, this is uh, the holiness of God. This is the essence of, of who he is and what we need to seek to be now because of Christ's work 
for us and in us. This isn't an option. This isn't like a nice to have, you know, supplement. This is a requirement for every Christian. It's a requirement for every Christian. Next, his glory. His glory. What is the glory of God? This is a, I mean, when you think about like, okay, God's glory, it's what, you know, what is coming to mind? You know, we have to be careful there, but it's, it's like, what do we think upon when we meditate upon God's glory? And this question is important because Scripture refers to His glory all over the place. In many ways, we could say the glory of God is the aim of all things. It's the aim of all things. Uh, This is the view that God has of his glory. He places a high value on his glory such that he doesn't share it with others in the fullest sense, right? I think of, um, like, in sports, Mm. like there was a show back in the day called Beyond the Glory. Mm. It's kind of like uh, giving credit to their their great career and, like, um, you know, um, just, you know, trying to celebrate who they were and what they did. Mm. It's kind of, I think, like his, God's glory. It's like celebrating his greatness and uh, his majesty. Yeah, so that falls under uh, the second heading I have, I believe. Um, so I want to tie that in um, here shortly because I have it broken down like three ways in a sense that we can consider his glory. There are many other ways, but when we read in Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. There is a glory that is inherent in his name. And there is a glory that is owed that name. And that glory he shares with no one at all. The Old Testament uses uh, various words for glory. While really in the New Testament we have doxa, that's going to be your word that you primarily see for that. Uh, in the Old Testament, it has reference to it has reference to um, weightiness. Uh, I think it's like that, maybe with a Y. Weightiness. Um, it has reference to weightiness. Is that wrong? It's wrong. It's with an I. So I was right the first time. Okay. When you turn around and everybody's laughing, I guess you know you didn't spell it right. So, okay. It has, it has reference to something that is heavy or weighty, as well as to the appearance of something. In the New Testament, the New Testament, it carries with it this, uh, an objective subjective aspect to it. Objectively, it's speaking of appearance. Subjectively, it's what one would be entitled to. What one is entitled to receive. Objectively, it's appearance, or as we kept seeing in all of this, it's like ontological. I mean, he is all of these things in his very being, in who he is. So when we think of that which is weighty or heavy, how do we reconcile weightiness being equal to or describing glory? 
Okay. <laughs> Various things, how is their value determined? Think of even in, like the, in, in the scriptures. They would say they would do what with currency? They would weigh it. They would weigh it out, and you would know the value. It was weighed, it was measured, and then associated with that, it was particular value. We also see this aspect of weight and glory uh, compared to light affliction, momentary affliction in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So that's what we're, notice what's being said. There's momentary light affliction. It's contrasted over and against this weight of glory. What is it saying? What is that telling us? What's that? That's right. The value of what awaits us in eternity is more than anything we go through now. Why? Because our glory that we have because of Christ is eternal. The afflictions and the hardships and the difficulties and whatever we go through now, momentary and described as light, not heavy when compared to the eternal, the weight that is with the glory, the value that is in the glory. Um, and so, when we speak of the glory of God as being weighty, we are saying God is valuable. God is full of worth in who He is. Yeah, so this comes to the manifestation of himself. That's the next piece. Um, even the way Piper breaks it down is he talks about the manifestation, manifestation of his holiness. And here's what Piper says on that, because if you have not watched, search uh, holiness of God maybe, or, and there's a Ask Pastor John video on YouTube. Watch that this week as it relates to the glory of God. That's what it was. Search glory of God. You'll find uh, John Piper's deal. And what he talks about is this aspect that the glory of God is the manifestation of his holiness. What does he mean by that? He means that we see in his very being, in Isaiah 6, he is holy, holy, holy. And then the whole earth is full of what? Not holiness his glory and so what john piper says is this that when that holiness goes public it is glory it is glory and so when we try to describe the glory of god to somebody you're not able to take a oh you know it's like that right you have to like point and be like there's the glory of god and there's the glory of god do you see the glory of god all around us do we walk with eyes to see the glory of God manifested all around us. 
So that's what he says. He says it is the going public of his holiness. And finally, I mean, the ultimate consummate manifestation of God's glory is what? Or is who? Christ, <laughs> right? That's right. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This was the consummate manifestation of His glory. And then finally, real quick, it leads to the proclamation of praise. Glory is also you know, praise. We're, we're giving honor to Him. Uh, this is the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that has a two, two parts to it. There is truly singing and worshiping in that, in that sense. But it's also by how we live. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the way that we live and the way that we conduct ourselves in hopefully holiness and so forth, we're doing that to the glory of God where he is being praised even by how we live. And that's what we see in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. We are to let our light shine. In what way? For what purpose? For his glory, but so that those who see your good deeds glorify your God in heaven. What they see shining forth from you is not your glory, not your holiness and so forth. What they see shining forth from you is God. The glory of God, if you will, like we kind of manifest that in some sense, if you get what I'm saying there, it's not like fully, but what they look and they say is, God is glorious based on how we live our life. So, any questions? Any questions? No? We're good? Okay, let's go worship.